As mentioned this morning, we are going to be looking at the topic of baptism, continuing our series of sermons uh, on the various topics of our Sunday morning service, why we do what we do. And uh, if you've been at this church for any length of time, you have uh, undoubtedly realized that um, we don't baptize on Sunday morning. We would if there was a baptismal right here, but there's not. So we're going to have to have an alternate plan. Either bring in a portable baptismal um, or go elsewhere and use someone's pool or something. But nonetheless, uh, we do believe in this uh, practice and and do do it. Uh, Have done it at least once since I've been here uh, as pastor one time. And hopefully uh, many more times in the future as we see the Lord uh, redeem and save people. So again, we'll be looking at the issue of why do we practice uh, baptism. In particular, um, I'd just like to be more specific with that. Why do we practice water baptism? And we'll get into some of the differences with that. But before we do, uh, let's just uh, pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Our Lord, our God, you are majestic. Your name is holy. You are our Redeemer. And just as we have sung, there is nothing in ourselves And nothing that we can do that could ever take away sin, that could ever cover even just one rebellious thought, let alone the actions that flow from that thought. Lord, we celebrate the fact that you are the author and perfecter of our faith in Jesus Christ. And you are the giver of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have given us of your Son, our Savior, our Lord. And in this, we just want to praise you. Help us now as we study the the question of why we practice water baptism. Help us to understand why. Help me, Lord God, to explain your word clearly, uh, to speak that which is edifying and helpful, and to be clear um, in making your word understood as uh, it needs to be and deserves to be. Help us now, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now this morning, I just want to begin by highlighting the fact that there's a lot of confusion about baptism within Christianity today, and particularly even within the evangelical community today. A lot of confusion. Back in 2011, Pastor John MacArthur noted this. He said, and I quote, One of the strange paradoxes in the church is that the world is full of baptized non-Christians. Millions of them all over the planet, baptized non-Christians, while at the same time, the church is full of non-baptized Christians, some like you. What a strange paradox that is. And it raises the issue of baptism, and that is why people are so confused about it, unquote. And so this morning, we, we are going to try to unravel the confusion, to try to make things that perhaps are unclear to you to make them clear. And, and churches uh, generally, of, of no, most churches are virtually no help with this because even some churches teach that, that baptism is necessary for salvation. Others don't, they don't even say that it's necessary. They just totally ignore it altogether. So how under the same umbrella of Christianity can you have one group that says it's absolutely necessary for salvation whether it's coupled with faith or whether it's not. And then on the other side, have a whole other group that say, ah, it's totally unimportant, we can completely ignore it. 
So this morning, I'm going to try to chart us on a path that is biblical, that neither elevates it to a place of an essential for salvation, yet neither denigrates it and ignores it since it is spoken of by the Lord himself. So this morning, we're going to answer the question, why do we practice church baptism? And this morning, we're going to look at three central reasons why the church, this church, practices water baptism. And those three reasons, I'll give them to you in summary, and then we'll dig into the details. First, baptism is a profound act of obedience. Water baptism is a profound act of obedience. Two, water baptism is a beautiful symbol of the new life we have in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful symbol of of the new life we have in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, baptism is a bold declaration of our allegiance to Jesus Christ, of our faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. So let's let's begin by digging into some of the, the details. First, we practice water baptism because water baptism is a profound act of obedience. And uh, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. The end of Matthew, Matthew 28, is the last chapter. And in particular, I'm going to turn our attention to the Great Commission. When Jesus gave his disciples the, the last command, at least the last in Matthew, that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, and I'd like us to, to read verses 18 to 20, and then we'll, we'll look at them. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, remember when this great commission was given. It was after our Lord's resurrection, but prior to his ascension, when he was preparing to leave them. It had not left them yet. The eleven disciples and possibly other disciples were gathered to hear this this command by our Lord and our God. It It was to be the marching orders for these 11 disciples, but by extension to those that they would go and train likewise, that they, the, the, uh, this was also a command to those disciples and hence to us today as the Lord's church. Notice there's that command about teaching, teaching all that I commanded. And part of that commanding, as we see from this text, is our Lord's command to be baptizing uh, as in, in part of that making disciples. Now, one of the things I wanted to point out in this text is when Jesus gave this command, um, he, he gave one central focus, one central purpose uh, was to be accomplished. And that's kind of hidden sometimes by the way that the English is, is uh, translated. And that's uh, just, it's just some of the limitations of English. The translators have done a good job here, I think, in conveying the meaning. So I don't, wanna, uh, m- don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. But the way that it's translated makes it sound like the first thing you've got to do is go. And that's, that's given in the first part of the verse. But what I want to draw your attention to is the, is the command to make disciples. That's really the main emphasis of the verb. That's the main part of what we are, main, that's the main part of the command. 
To make disciples is to make someone a pupil of. We don't use that word too often, but it's another word for student. But in the context of faith in Christ, it's much more than a student, but it is at a minimum that. To make a person a pupil of or a learner from Christ. John Broadhouse defines to make disciples this way. He explains it this way. He says, quote, To make disciples is to disciple a person to Christ. Sorry, to disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into the relation of pupil to teacher, taking his yoke, quote-unquote, of authoritative instruction, accepting what he says as true because he says it, and then submitting to his requirements as to his requirements as right because he makes them, unquote. D.A. Carson succinctly explains that disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. Now, let's repeat that. Disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. So as we talk about making disciples, that's in essence what we're talking about. We're talking about helping those, being a part of the process where God takes someone who is ignorant of his ways and perhaps uh, defiant of God's ways and brings them into alignment with his will and with his purpose so that they hear, understand, and obey his teachings. So the, the church is, is called to make disciples. And, and that, that verb there, like the other, some of the other verbs we've looked at um, in other messages where there's a command present, it's a second person plural imperative. What does that mean? It means it's a command, and it's not given just to one person. It's given to all. In this case, we know it's 11 disciples, but by extension, it's, it's really to all of us. By application, it's given so that today we can, we can positively say that the church is commanded to make disciples. It's non-negotiable. Some have said that this is the primary reason that God has left us here on earth. It's the primary reason that God just doesn't whisk you to heaven at the moment you're saved. You are here to make disciples, to be a witness for him. And notice... Uh, Jesus specifies who are, the, who are they to make disciples of. Had he not said this, they most likely would have limited themselves in their thinking to the Jews and the Jewish nation. But notice what Jesus says. Go therefore, make disciples of whom? Of all the nations. Of all the nations. The, the word there, uh, nations, is the Greek word ethnos similar to our word ethnicity. You understand that. It's where you come from. It's it's different ethnoses, different nations, different people. D.A. Carson explains that this term means all peoples without distinction, or you could say all nations without distinction. Thus the aim of Jesus' disciples, therefore, is to make disciples of all men everywhere without distinction, unquote. So this command to make disciples is the center point of the Great Commission. But that is not all Jesus said to his disciples. He gave some supporting instructions that are part of the process of making disciples. They're not the only part of the process of making disciples, but they are key enough that Jesus highlights them here. There are three supporting participles in the Greek that help us understand this process of making disciples. Again, it's not an exhaustive, but it's the highlights that Jesus gives us in this command. The first one is what I mentioned in the beginning, go. Now, in in English, that appears to be a command. Uh, In the Greek, it's actually one of the participles, like going, except we don't start the word going. Uh, Usually, uh, you use that word in the beginning of a sentence. 
So go, therefore. Uh, the therefore is more or less implied based on the authority that Christ has given his disciples, that Christ has the all authority on heaven and earth. He is delegating that authority to these 11 disciples and by extension to his church to go make the disciples. What authority do they have for making disciples? The authority of Jesus Christ. And so that's why the therefore is, is inserted there. On the basis of, of what's in verse 18, they are to, to go. Now as a participle, uh, it doesn't carry the same force as an imperative, make disciples. So some kind of soften a little bit and say, as you're going. In other words, as you're going about your, your daily life. And there is some truth to this. We are called to make disciples in all our walks of life, no matter what we're doing, and no matter what our profession and careers are. Uh, calling are. But however, we need not isolate the participle from the main verb. Uh, when a participle is used with an imperative, and that imperative is what again? It's the make disciples. So when a participle is used with a Greek imperative, the participle carries the force of an imperative. All that to say is, Okay, so the term go is a, one of the participles. It's still part of the command of making disciples. We can't weasel out and say we don't have to go. Part of the process of making disciples is to go. Yes, many would stay in Jerusalem and make disciples right there as they went about their daily lives. But some would need to go. And, and the Lord caused that some through persecution, some of which we read about in uh, Acts 7. Because of that persecution of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, the church began to spread. And they went out. Others purposely went out with the goal of proclaiming Christ, not just as by way of escaping persecution. But we cannot make disciples of all the nations if we don't go to them. So this is, this is functionally a command to go. So that's the first imperative the second is the, is the term baptizing, found in verse 19. Baptizing. Now, just as discussed with the word go, the word baptizing is a, is a participle, but it carries the force of a command. And so we can rightly say that Jesus command that his disciples be baptized and that the apostles baptize uh, disciples in that process. But what, what I want us to understand is that Jesus isn't just commanding the process or the practice of water baptism. He wasn't commanding that the disciples gather an army and march them through cities and get people at the edge of the sword to, be, to go through the waters of baptism. So here, the term baptism, and we'll get into what it means in a moment, but here what I want you to understand, the term baptism is serving as a summary statement for proclaiming Christ calling people to faith in Christ, seeing them come to faith in Christ, and the capstone is their public profession of that in the waters of baptism. So it's not just, go carry out this act of baptism. It's just a summary statement for the, for the preaching of the gospel, the embracing of Christ, and the fruits of that seen as people uh, embrace the gospel. I'm going to come back to what does baptizing mean. Obviously, that's the main thrust of this sermon. But I want to highlight the third imperative, what we're talking about, or third, sorry, the third participle, and that is the participle teaching. And found in the beginning of verse 20, teaching. They were to teach these disciples. 
the 11 disciples were to go and make disciples of all the nations. It's, it was to care, they were to, to be faithful, to, to pass along everything that Jesus had taught them. They were to go and to teach. Uh, to teach means to instruct, to, to provide that cognitive, truthful uh, information that Jesus had relayed to them. And really, we just need to learn from this that that being a disciple of Jesus Christ, becoming a disciple, and making disciples of Jesus Christ cannot be done without instruction. Again, I'll quote Carson. He says, The New Testament can scarcely conceive of a disciple who is not baptized or is not instructed. Indeed, the force of this command is to make Jesus' disciple responsible for making disciples of others, a task characterized by baptism and instruction, unquote. So disciples were to instruct the new disciples. And again, in what were they to instruct them in? Well, that's spelled out for us in verse 20. Jesus says, to observe all that I commanded you. So Jesus didn't want them just to relay information. He didn't just say, well, relay the facts. He's saying, observe all that I commanded you. So observe is, is another word for obey, to be obedience, uh, to listen to with the idea of putting into practice. So if they were going to put something into practice, then that, the ground of that is that the disciples would actually teach them and coach them or help disciple them and walk them through the process of sanctification and applying these truths to their lives so that the new disciples would actually observe and obey what Jesus commanded the, the first disciples. It's that faithful passing along from generation to generation of the teachings of Jesus Christ. Remember, this was critically important. The Old Testament was written, but the New Testament wasn't written. So all that Jesus had taught them was not written yet. It is written for our benefit and for our objectivity. And so we'll know the objective truth of the Word of God and what happens. But at that time, the New Testament was not written. So the teachings that Christ gave his disciples at that time resided in the disciples alone. So it was imperative that they go and teach others what Jesus had taught them. So that's all I want to say about these three imperatives. The main thrust is to go make disciples. We've got to go to do that. And in order to make disciples, we've got to go proclaim the gospel. That's capstone with the idea of baptism, baptizing them, and teaching them. So once they become a disciple uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, outwardly demonstrated through baptism, then we teach them to observe what Jesus said. So, so we need to understand that Jesus commands that baptism be practiced. And I just want to pause a minute and let that sink in. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you must obey your Lord's command regarding baptism. First, you must be baptized. That's the initial part of disciple-making. So as a church, we have a responsibility to baptize believers in Jesus Christ. But believers... That's you. You have a responsibility to be baptized. So you must encourage and help others to be baptized. That's each one of us. Whether directly, as if in a pastor or somebody else who's doing the baptism, or indirectly and just encouraging them to pursue the truth. Now, I've used the word baptism but haven't defined it yet, so I want to just talk a little bit about that. What does the term baptism mean? When I say that word, you have an image that comes to mind depending on your background, depending on what church you're raised in, or, or perhaps uh, the scriptures that you've read, uh, having so read them that they're ingrained, that a certain idea that comes to mind. 
So what, is it, what does baptizing mean? Grant Osborne in the Baker Encyclopedia of, of the Bible defines it this way. He says, baptism is a term generally meaning to dip or immerse, but representing a group of words employed to signify a religious rite for ritual cleansing. In Judaism, there were ritual abulations, uh, Qumran illustrations, and proselyte baptism. In the New Testament, it became the rite of initiation into the Christian community. The concept not only referred to the cultic rite, but it was also interpreted theologically as dying and rising with Christ, unquote. So it's a, it's a mouthful, but what I want you to hear is that he uses the term this. He says it, the term generally means to dip or immerse, although in some contexts you could make a case that it represents a larger uh, meaning of words to signify a religious ritual cleansing or washing. The biblical doctrine... Uh, biblical doctrine, the systematic theology uh, put out by the Master Seminary, explains that the word baptism, uh, explains the word baptism this way, and I quote, the word baptize, from the Greek baptizo, means to immerse or to dip. When used literally, the term refers to actions like the dipping of fabric into dye or the immersion of a person in water. But it is also used figuratively in the New Testament to emphasize the close identity and solidarity between two people. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, Paul explains that the Old Testament Israel was baptized into Moses. That figurative use of the word underscored the solidarity of the Israelites with their God-ordained spokesman and leader, unquote. So again, we have another uh, theological dictionary that... that, that clearly states that the word baptize means to immerse or to dip. Now, we readily recognize that there are many people who disagree with that. In fact, the people who, who actually support the idea uh, that the word baptize means to dip or immerse are in the minority. The majority of the professing Christian community holds to an opposite view. Um, these are divergent uh, as divergent theologies, so I'm not mixing them all in one bag, but Catholics, Calvin, Luther, those of the Reformed faith, Presbyterians, etc., all would hold to a view uh, that this word does not mean to dip or to immerse, um, though that it is its dictionary meaning in the Greek, or its range of meanings. So how should we discern the truth? Well, first of all, understand, uh, understand that baptism, the word baptism in English, is a Greek transliteration. It's a transliteration. What do I mean by that? It's not a translation. Okay? So to give you an example, the, the word uh, koinonia is the Greek word that we translate fellowship. Now, we've used the term koinonia so much in English, you kind of understand, <clears throat> excuse me, you kind of understand what it means. That, that idea. Agape is another one. You can, you can, we've used it so much that if I say agape, it's a Greek term. Those who have been in the church have been saved for a while, you understand that that is one of the Greek terms for love. Same as philo, like Philadelphia. It's a term for love. So in a sense, we could just use, we could transliterate the term agape. If I said, if I said God commands you to agape your brother, I would be using that term in a transliteration not a translation. If I want to translate the term, I'll say you are commanded to love your brother. You are commanded to love your sister. But in a transliteration, I could say you are commanded to agape 
your brother. You're commanded to agape, your sister. So when we come to this term baptism, for whatever reasons, we don't have time to go look at the, the history on this, when the reformers began to translate the Bible into the common man's language, and particularly into English, because we're dealing with an English Bible, when they came to that term, baptizo, which is a legitimate Greek term, they did not translate it. They transliterated it. Now, why did they do that? Well, some would say it was a technical term that everybody understood. I don't quite buy the argument, although I have not done an exhaustive study, and there's probably a lot on this that I have yet to learn. My theory, and this is, this is reading between the lines, so this doesn't come from Scripture. My theory is that the Reformers had so many theological rocks to turn over as they were translating the Scripture, and, and they were, their minds were being transformed. Their, their minds were being renewed by the Scriptures, and they were coming to the realization that salvation, so critical to people, you know, so critical to, to all of Scriptures and to Christ's mission, that, that, that the church had kind of confused that. And so their focus was on getting the gospel right. And, and they did get it right, as we know. Luther and Calvin, we, we stand with them. As, as, and, so, and in some sense, all of us stand on their shoulders for the work that they have done in, in helping to bring about, to bring back, uh, the, and really bring out of the darkness the, the light of the truth of the glory of God, that salvation is by faith, and it's by grace and faith in Christ alone. And all that was kind of shrouded in mystery as the, as, because the Bible was in a language people didn't understand. They didn't have it. Common man couldn't read it. They just had to trust those who were teaching. And the most, most of those who were teaching were not teaching accurately. And so when they came to this term baptism, instead of giving it a legitimate translation, they left it as the word baptize. Why? Because it was a political hot potato. And again, you're getting my theory. This is my hypothesis, okay? I want to emphasize that. My hypothesis is that the translators of our English Bible worked with this um, transliteration because it didn't require any drastic changes. Because even some of the reformers who were gung-ho about salvation in faith alone and Christ alone practiced this idea of, of sprinkling or pouring or even infant baptism, which we'll talk about in a moment. And can you imagine what would happen to the Reformation if instead of keeping the main thing the main thing, which is the authority of Scripture, salvation by faith in Christ alone, now it, it goes to what I would call at least a second-tier theology where you're now have fights between the Reformers over baptism. And, it, and that did happen. Right? Those theological fights over baptism did happen. But, but again, I want to keep to the, kind of, without going into all the details, keep to the main thing, which is helping to understand why the translators use the word, the transliteration, baptizo. Right? So why is that important for you to know? Because when you go through your Bible and read the word baptizing, like we have in Matthew 28, it actually means something besides the ritual act that you think it does. Right? So when you hear the word baptizing, you're probably thinking about either your own baptism or somebody else's that you saw. But understand that, that Greek word has a definitive meaning. It either means to immerse, to dip, or 
An acknowledgement to our Presbyterian and Reformed brothers in Christ, we could say it could mean sprinkle or pour. So really, there's only four, pretty much. So go through your Bible, and every time you see the word baptize or baptizing, insert one of those four. And how do we know the truth? Let the context help you. Now, in some cases, the context doesn't provide a lot of help, but in other cases, it does. And I would say in more cases than not, you're going to find that the word immersion or dip fits the context the best. Now, remember that the mode of baptism, whether we're talking about immersion, whether we're talking about sprinkling or pouring of water over someone's head, these are not, the mode of baptism is not a cardinal truth. What do I mean by that? It's not a truth that everybody has to believe in to be saved. Right? So let me be clear about that. So if you deny the deity of Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. That is a cardinal truth. So if you deny in any way the deity of Jesus Christ, even if you profess faith in this twisted form of Christ and of God, you will not be saved. Why? Because you don't believe in the true Christ. You have your own God. You've made your own Christ. It's an idol Christ. It's not the real Christ. But in baptism, this is not a, a, the mode of baptism is not a cardinal truth. So with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the Presbyterians, the Reformed brothers, this is not something that we have to fight over. We should discuss and we should sharpen one another's thinking in a way that is edifying to one another. We should be able to study the scriptures together and reason with one another in a God-honoring way. But it is not something that we are to, to fight over. This church practices water immersion because it best represents the biblical text. But I recognize that there are others who think differently. But, but let me leave you with, with this thought here. There are Greek words for sprinkle. And they're used in the New Testament. Sprinkle with blood. That's not the word. If the Holy Spirit wanted to clearly identify the mode of sprinkling, why didn't he do that? There are also words that are used to talk about pour. Pouring things over. The Holy Spirit chose not to use that term as well. So we need to understand that while this church teaches that baptism by immersion is, I believe, most representative of the biblical truth, we, we need not, like, argue over that. We're going to teach it, but we recognize others fall elsewhere. But it's, it's in a thing that I just want to challenge you to, to really think through. What does the scripture mean? Because it, it does have one meaning. Right? I, will, I will affirm that. Either we're wrong or the Presbyterians are wrong. Either the Reformed are wrong or we're wrong. And the Lord will straighten it out when we get to heaven. We'll know then, right? The Lord has chosen to write his word the way that he has. Uh, Many of us would wish we had greater clarity, but we have all that we need. I will affirm that. We don't need to know more. Now notice in in baptizing them, this is so, we would hold that this means to literally to dip or immerse a person down underneath the waters of baptism. Uh, Notice here that they're to do so in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the end of verse 19. This does not mean 
though some have practiced this throughout church history, that we have to baptize three times. Right? So I think that uh, they've taken here uh, Jesus' words, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, too literal. Uh, so there are, there are groups who even today practice tri-immersion. We do not practice tri-immersion. We do baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because Jesus commands us to, but we also rec- need to recognize that we have not three gods but one. So tri-immersion, in my opinion, emphasizes the persons of the Godhead while at the same time sacrificing the unity of the Godhead. We have but one God. And it's to him that we declare our allegiance. And we'll talk more about this later. But the, the, the many of the early examples in Acts and even uh, in Romans, uh, Paul mentions baptism in Romans 8, they mention being baptized in the name of Jesus and some, some want to uh, make a big deal over why is that so different than, than the Lord's commission here and why is it so different. It shouldn't surprise us. When Jesus came, did he draw like massive attention to himself? The answer is no. He pointed to whom? The Father. He said, all, that I, all the Father does, I only do what the Father has given me to do. I only do what I see him doing. I only say what he's given me to say. So here, this term of baptizing, is, it's just his way of glorifying the Father and recognizing the Spirit's uh, role in salvation and, and making disciples. So I don't think we need to draw any kind of uh, divide between what Jesus is saying and what the disciples and apostles later did. So this command, and we find in Matthew 28 of, of, of the Lord, is a command to go and be baptized. It's a, it's a command for disciples to be baptized, but more specifically, it's a command for the church, uh, for Christians to carry on the work of baptizing believers, to baptize them in the process of making disciples. But, but I also want to highlight that the command to be baptized is, is carried on. Uh, not just by Jesus, but it's carried on by the apostles and others proclaiming the gospel. So if you want to turn there, uh, Acts 2, uh, verses 36 and 38, show us on one such occasion. Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 38. This is the day of Pentecost, so it's the day when Jesus sent forth his spirit on the disciples. They were speaking in tongues, and those from many other places of the world who would come to worship in Jerusalem were hearing them speak. So this wasn't a mystery language. This wasn't babble. This just wasn't a, a rattling of the tongue. These were known languages that were being speaked. And these disciples did not go study these languages before they spoke them. And, and we see that in verse 8. How is it that each, we each hear them in our own language to which we are born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, and districts of Libya, around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues. Notice all those languages. The Jews were speaking all those languages, though they had not studied them. That's the true gift of the tongues that the Lord gave on the day of baptism. So on this day, Peter preaches a sermon. Because of this, this event, this phenomena, gets people's attention. They think these people are drunk. Peter says, no, they're not drunk. And so he launches into his sermon. And, and for the sake of time, I want to focus your attention uh, on verse 36 
Um, when they heard this, I'm sorry, verse 36. So P- Peter summarizes his sermon this way. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And here's where Peter just looks him in the eye. And the power of God pierces him. This Jesus whom you crucified. You crucified. Yes, you nation. You Israel as a nation. You crucified. So he's, this is not one of those watered down sermons that kind of lacks the punch. This is the landing of the knockout blow. Not by Peter's own strength, but by the power of the Spirit. Verse 37, now when they heard this, instead of getting angry like other crowds would do, the, the Holy Spirit was at work. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. To Peter and to the rest of the apostles, they said this, Brethren, what shall we do? What do we do? Imagine the panic. Peter's preaching the sermon. And he said, you just crucified the Christ. You just slaughtered him. You murdered him. So not, were they, not only were they sinners already, but, but now they were agents in putting to, putting to death the Lord of glory, the one who was to be the Messiah. They didn't understand all the truth yet, but here's what Peter says to them. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. That added is to the church. 3,000 souls. And they knew the number. It wasn't just some unknown mass crowd. But, but look with me at me at verse 38. Peter says to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized. Now, some have misunderstood Peter's words. Some have said, well, this shows that baptism is required um, because he, he commands it. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So there are some churches today who say there's no forgiveness of sins unless you're baptized. Even if you have faith in Christ, that's not sufficient. You've got to go be baptized, and then you'll be forgiven. And that's just wrong. It's just clearly wrong. That's heretical. Salvation is by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. That's made clear verse after verse after verse after verse after verse after verse after verse, after verse in the New Testament. Right? In almost all the epistles. Right? In the gospel, Jesus himself. So that, that's, to, to say that is to ignore the rest of Scripture. So, so what does Peter mean? How are we to understand what he's saying? Why is he commanding them to repent and be baptized? Why doesn't he just say, repent? which is a, kind of the uh, Siamese twin to faith. Right? Kind of faith, not repentance. They kind of go together. So the reason is this. What did he just say? Verse 36, he said what? This Jesus whom you crucified. What did they do? They publicly denied him. They publicly denied Christ. Crucified him. So when Peter says to them, repent, what is repentance? What are they to repent of? Not just sins in general. That's true. In general, they're sinners, and in general, they should repent. But, but what is he, he calling them to repent of? And specifically, 
a public denial of Jesus Christ. Well, how do you repent of a public denial and the murder of Jesus Christ? By being baptized. So the baptism would show their genuine faith in him, would demonstrate repentance. The baptism doesn't bring about salvation. It just demonstrates true faith and true repentance. And Peter knew that, and so he he was giving them a path forward. It's like saying to, to the thief, you know, if a thief is convicted that he's been stealing, he says, you know, I'm a thief. What do I do? I, I'm, just, I'm just no good. What do I do to be saved? Well, there's lots you could tell him, but the first thing you need to tell him is repent and stop stealing. In fact, not only stop stealing, but get a job and work and give some of that money away. Because that's, that's, the, that's the 180. If you're taking from people, the 180 of repentance is give it. So here, Peter is just saying, before you denied him, the 180, the repentance part, is that you embrace him publicly and be baptized in his name. That's what Peter is is saying here, and and it's a command. And we can go to other passages of Scripture. Um, For example, when when, um, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, when he was confronted, when uh, Ananias came, not Ananias, um, sorry, when, when he was confronted by the um, apostles. Um, I've just lost my place. Sorry, Ananias. Right? When Ananias was sent to minister to Paul after Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, he commanded, Ananias commanded Paul to be baptized. Acts 22.16 tells us this. Acts 22.16 tells us that Ananias commanded Paul to get up and be baptized. While Acts 9.18 gives us the parallel, it records Paul's response. He got up and was baptized. He listened. So all of this sets, sets a model for us. Uh, as well, I could draw in um, Acts chapter 10, um, when Peter was divinely summoned to the house of Cornelius. He preached the gospel to the entire, entire household. In fact, the, we're told the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening even before he was finished with the sermon. He didn't have to, to give that kind of punchline uh, like he did in Jerusalem, these God-fearing Gentiles believed even before he finished his sermon. And, and what is the response we're told? He told them, he said this, Surely no one can refuse water for those to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. So he saw these, Holy, these Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that he did. And he said, There's, how can we deny the waters of baptism? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter ordered that. He ordered, in other words, the, the, those who were of the, uh, from Jerusalem, who were believers, Jewish believers from Jerusalem who'd come with him. He ordered them. These new disciples must be baptized. So again, we see in a, kind of in a multi-layered fashion that, the, that, that we practice water baptism because it's a, it's a command. And I realize I have to go much quicker with these the next two points, and I, I will do that. Right. So we practice water baptism as a, um, as a beautiful act of obedience, as a profound act of obedience. But that's not the only reason. We practice water baptism because it's an outward symbol of an inward reality. Believers in Christ are baptized with the Holy Spirit at salvation. It's what this church teaches and what I believe the scripture holds to. So during the early days of the church after Pentecost, when the gospel was going out to the nations, the Holy Spirit didn't always fall immediately on people when they believed. 
This delay was necessary at times to ensure that the falling of the Holy Spirit upon the nations would be witnessed and attested to by the apostles. It was important that there would be an apostolic witness to the Holy Spirit's work among that nation. And many times that apostolic witness was Peter, sometimes Peter and John. So with the Samaritans, with the Gentiles, and and later on the Lord uses uh, Paul with with even disciples of John, an apostolic witness to the effect. effect. And so when the... the, um, Gentiles were believing the word preached by Philip, and they were being baptized. The Holy Spirit wasn't falling upon them. Why? Because Peter wasn't there yet. There was a a delay until Peter got there, prayed for them, and the Holy Spirit fell. He himself witnessed that the Holy Spirit fell in the same way that he had in Pentecost upon the Jewish believers. So bringing them together. So there are times where the Holy Spirit delayed intentionally, strategically, falling upon believers. But the norm, and for us today, it is true for all, the Holy Spirit comes upon you at the moment of your salvation. We call this spirit baptism. Spirit baptism isn't a secondary experience. It isn't something that you have to pray for that happens later. The Holy Spirit comes at the moment of salvation. At the moment anyone truly believes in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and lives permanently within them. And... And um, so I refer to this as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, of which water is the symbol, right? Not the means, but the symbol. Now, note that at this time, I don't have, I don't have the liberty of, of discussing really all the details of the order of salvation. Uh, theologians have debated this and call this ordo salutis, a Latin phrase meaning the order of salvation. Uh, as one theology book explains, Ordo Salutis aims to define the, th- the theological and chronological relationships between various stages of the application of redemption. What I, I, I don't have time to go into all that this morning, but here's what I want you to understand. God is the initiator of our salvation, while not relieving us of the responsibility to repent and believe. Okay? And we get, we, there are many verses that are very clear about this. First John chapter 12, verse 13, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who are born, listen, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of men, but of God. Right? Emphasize there, the will of God. What causes men and women to be born again. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What dead man is able to raise himself? No one. That's the obvious point. That's what he's saying. God has to bring life before there's any kind of response to the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30, kind of uh, probably the most, uh, most defined uh, as far as, uh, most detailed as far as this order of salvation, uh, although not giving us everything we might want to know. But listen to what Paul says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these he call, whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 
So acknowledging that God is the great initiator of our salvation does nothing to remove men and women's responsibility to believe in Jesus Christ and to repent of their sins. Now, if you want to know more about the Order Salutis, you can pick up a copy of uh, Systematic Theology, Biblical Doctrine. Uh, I highly recommend that if you want to dig more into that. But let's get back to the, to the issue at hand, which is baptism. So the Lord initiates salvation, and, and, it, and we believe that the Scriptures teach that the Spirit comes upon us at that moment of salvation. So, um, as the Spirit comes upon you, and I think this is very clearly explained to us in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12. So if you would turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, specifically verses 12 and 13. Um, I don't have time to to talk too much about the context, except to say that it's in in the larger context of talking about spiritual gifts and the unity of the body, while understanding that, that the unity of the body doesn't mean that everybody has the same spiritual giftedness. So look at verse 12. Um, or verse, sorry, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. So notice that, what he says there. Verse 13, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. What is he talking about? Is he talking about water baptism? No, he's not talking about water baptism. Right? They were baptized at different times. He's not talking about that. He's talking about by the spirit, we were all baptized into one body. What body is that? Look at the end of verse 12. Our one body also is Christ. So this is Christ's body. Right? So he's using the imagery of the human body to talk about the spiritual body of Jesus Christ, the church, and how we are one while at the same time having different gifts and different ways of service. We're all not going to serve the same way. We're all not gifted the same way. But we are one. There is one unity. How does that unity come about? By through the Spirit. And notice, Paul doesn't say some of you are Spirit baptized, but some of you carnal guys, you're not. Now what does he say? For we were all baptized into one body. So at the moment you come into the body of Christ, that's the moment where you are saved. The Holy Spirit has brought you into the body of Christ. You are baptized with the Holy Spirit. From that moment on, you do not need to to seek any kind of second experience. So that's, that's what he's talking about here. So Paul discusses the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Romans 6 as well. So if you would turn to Romans 6, it's a key passage on baptism. Again, in this, notice there's no mention of water. I do not believe this is talking about water baptism, although it is read at at many water baptisms because of its imagery, and, and rightly so. But it is not talking specifically about water baptism. Verse 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, notice that term, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now again, I, uh, there's, there's many details in this that show us that this is not water baptism, but the spirit baptism. Right? The spirit is mentioned the fact that we are baptized into his death, right? So not just symbolically, but spiritually. What, what, what is the point at which Christ's death gets applied to you? And that's the moment of your salvation. He died once for all. But the moment of application for you is, is when you believe, when you, are, when you are baptized. I think it's clear if you look... At the end of verse 6, he says, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Well, so the scriptures teach that those who are unrepentant, those who are unbelieving, are slaves to sin. But at some point in time, scripture clearly says, this one in particular, says that we're no longer to be slaves to sin. Oh, he's not saying we don't sin. That's a separate discussion he gives into in Romans 7. But here he's saying no longer slaves to sin. So when did you become not a slave to sin, but a slave to God? That's your salvation. And that's, that's, that's that spirit baptism. That's why I think this passage uh, is t- talking about spirit baptism. But we practice water baptism because it, it, it is a beautiful symbol of the true baptism of the spirit that brings us into the body of Christ. So as stated in, in the systematic theology, biblical doctrine, water baptism then is the outward post-conversion demonstration of an inward reality that has already occurred at conversion. Let me read that again. Water baptism then is the outward post-conversion demonstration of an inward reality that has already occurred at salvation. So we practice water baptism because it's a profound act of obedience. We practice water baptism because it is a, an outward symbol of the inward reality But we also practice baptism because it's a bold declaration of our outward um, allegiance, of our allegiance to, or you could say, faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, I I like the word allegiance to. um, It it connotes um, also faith. Uh, Faith is present with that as well. But I want you to see this from 1 Corinthians. There's, I think, a passage that, that clearly shows us that to be baptized in the name of somebody is to declare faith in them, is to declare trust in them. So 1 Corinthians, and specifically to turn to verse 12, no, verse 11. 1 Just give us a little bit of setting. Paul says this, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am a Paul, I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So there's these parties within the church, these spiritual divisions. Each one thought they were better than the other. Some were saying, well, Paul's like the super apostle, so we're, we're following his teachings. But Apollos is said to be one of the best preachers that ever was, bar Christ. So others were claiming him. But others, because of Peter's priority within the apostles, were claiming Peter And those who were fed up with all the others were just saying, hey, we're better than you because we're following Christ. So there's all these divisions going on. But look what Paul responds to that. Verse 13, he rebukes them. He says, has Christ been divided? Are these, are these servants of Christ fighting against each other? No. 
Has Christ been divided? Notice he says this. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? He's saying, don't follow me. I'm not the one who died for you. But look at the next, how his next line of reasoning. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? What is he saying? You didn't declare your allegiance to me. When you were baptized, you were baptized in the name of Jesus. You were declaring faith in Jesus. You were, you were declaring your allegiance to Jesus. Your trust is in Jesus, not Paul. Your trust is in Jesus, not Peter. Your trust is in Jesus, not Apollos or Cephas. So Paul, Paul finishes by saying, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So he did baptize some. But he says, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. But he baptized in the name of Christ, not in his name. But people are misunderstanding that. He wasn't baptizing to create the disciples of Paul. Right? So there's a sense in which when John began baptizing, there was a group of people that became known as the disciples of John. And we, and we see them not only in Acts, but we see them uh, later on as they interact with Paul in Ephesus. So, Paul's saying, you're not a disciple of Paul. You're not a disciple of Apollos or Peter. You know, in an earthly sense, applying it to us, we're not, we're not disciples of John MacArthur. We're not disciples of Calvin or Luther or of any other earthly man. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. So when you, when you are baptized, you declare faith in. It's a public declaration of faith in and, and a, allegiance to Jesus Christ. And it is a necessary declaration. Uh, you could say, uh, you know, note, note Jesus' words in Mark 10, 32 and 33, where he says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Pretty stern words. Again, it's not teaching a work salvation. It's just saying those who are genuinely saved are going to be willing to confess that in front of others, even if it costs them their lives. And, and we see this in, in Acts 2.42, which I already read to you about the day of Pentecost. For those Jews to be baptized, they were inviting the wrath of the Jewish leaders. But they were baptized anyway, over 3,000 of them. So that's what we're talking about. So water baptism is a, it's a profound act of obedience. Water baptism is an outward symbol of the inward reality. And baptism is a bold declaration of our faith in and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, in just a few minutes that I have left, I want to try to deal with some practical questions that you might have been thinking about through this. One, one message on baptism can't cover all the areas, so these some I've had to purposely pass over and just skim over, so if I've not dealt with your question, please uh, feel free to talk to me after the service. But just quickly, what are these questions? What are the conditions for being baptized? Simply this, that one possesses the reality of spirit baptism. If water, bapti- water baptism is to symbolize spirit baptism, it's required by God that you be spirit baptized. Who's going to know that? You and you alone. Okay? But, that's, but we baptize on the basis of one's confession, by your profession of faith, right? No pastor or anybody else can actually tell whether you're saved. We can only see the fruits of life, and sometimes that's hard to see. But if you profess to believe in Jesus Christ, 
I will baptize you on, that, on the basis of that faith. But it's really that reality of the spirit baptism that, that is symbolized by that water baptism. So we need to confess. If you're willing to confess faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to confess your own inability to save yourself or to contribute to your salvation, then you should be baptized. And we, we refer to this as a believer's baptism, or more properly, as someone pointed out, believer baptism. We don't practice infant baptism, but believer baptism. Now, this, the view of believer baptism is found among the Reformers, known as the Anabaptists, that term Anna meaning re or again. Uh, so the re-baptizers, they were called the re-baptizers because these Reformers had been baptized as infants, but they believed it important because of Scripture and the authority of Scripture that people be, believe, be baptized as believers. So they, they commanded that, that uh, those who came to believe and trust in Christ genuinely were to be rebaptized, and there was a great battle over that, even amongst the reformers. So the next question is, should infants be baptized? I think you kind of see where I'm going with this. But those who support infant baptism make a strong connection between the promise of God given to Abraham in the Old Testament, that, that, that is uh, signified by circumcision, and the promise of the new covenant symbolized, they say, by baptism. Now, whatever the arguments are for infant baptism and the supposed blessings of infant baptism, it is Infant baptism is clearly different than all the baptisms in the New Testament. I don't care what argument you use. You can, you can go to the Old Testament and, and talk about the covenants all you want to. But I will say this. What did Jesus say about the New Covenant? This is my blood. This blood is the New Covenant. In my, this is the New Covenant in my blood. So if you want to point to a sign about the New Covenant, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. Because that's clearly stated by Christ himself. So baptism is commanded, and it is an outward symbol. But by, by trying to draw this parallel with the Old Testament rite of circumcision, they're not allowing the distinctions between the Old and New Testament that are rightly there. You go look at all the New Testaments in the New Testament. Study them and study them and study them. And they don't match anything what we read what, of those who support infant baptism. They're just different. All right, you can argue about the benefits of, our, of infant baptism, but whatever it is, it's not a declaration of faith and a pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's not a symbol of spirit baptism. And it can't be an act of obedience because the child doesn't even know enough to obey. So in, in all areas, it fails to match the criteria of Scripture. So while I, I will give a little on the mode of baptism, because I recognize there's... There's varying views there. Scripture doesn't allow us any room at all to go with infant baptism. Now, someone can practice infant baptism. All I'm saying is, it isn't New Testament, the baptism that Christ commanded. Very clearly. Infant baptism is not the baptism that Christ commanded of his disciples. So what is that? The implication is, those who only perform infant baptism are disobedient to the word of God and to Christ himself. Christ clearly commands people to believe and be baptized. That is not so difficult. Why is it so difficult? History, church history is brought into it. Tradition, don't want to offend your parents. Don't want to offend this person. And add on top of that, the church has not taught this topic clearly. Now, I realize I have not, you know, in just a few minutes, I can't do justice to the issue of infant baptism. So if this is an issue 
um, that you want to know more about in earnest, about what the scriptures teach about it, I recommend you getting uh, Matt Waymeyer's book called A Biblical Critique of Infant Baptism. Or if you're not a reader, you like to listen to things, then go online to Grace to You and listen to John MacArthur's sermon on infant baptism where he explains the history of it and the reasons why it's performed. It's sermon number 80-369. That's 80-369. Either one of those would be very helpful in going into more of the, of the details. But, but we will not ever baptize infants for the reasons that I've listed. When should someone be baptized? When they're saved. There's, there's no age requirement. I prefer, this is, a, again, a pastor's experience uh, speaking. This isn't a command of God, so be clear about that. I prefer that children be old enough to understand what they're doing. And I've seen far too many early childhood confessions of faith where the child meant well, but the child really wasn't saved, and that was evident later on in their life. So my preference is to wait until the child is later. I don't define an age. I work with the parents to help them um, know whether or not their child is ready. Again, I would liken it to what I said about communion. If, if you think your child is ready for church discipline, then they're probably ready for baptism. Because right? I, I don't think you can, you, can, you can invite them to the waters of baptism with also, without also inviting them to the aspect of the church life, which is church discipline. What's, what is the mode of baptism? I already kind of addressed that. Uh, immersion is what we're going to practice here. I think it best represents what the, the scriptural data that we have. Um, and, and what about the people who have been baptized as infants, which might be some of you here today. You've, some of you here today might have genuinely expressed faith in Christ as an adult, but you were baptized as an infant. You know, what should you do? Well, the first thing I think you should do is to thank God for godly parents. Because at least they made uh, that investment in you. Although infant baptism is not the baptism that Jesus commands, uh, you had parents who cared enough about you to want to try to do the right thing. But realize that infant baptism does not replace believer's baptism. So if you are baptized as an infant and have come to faith in Christ since then, because no one is born a believer then you need to follow in believer's baptism. You need to practice believer baptism and be baptized, confessing your faith, allegiance to Jesus Christ. No no matter what the consequences are, I understand sometimes families are very offended, but I don't think they should be. But even if they are, we need to be obedient to the command to practice it and to do it. And so I just want to extend an invitation to you as well as to those who have never been baptized to consider your, where you stand with the Lord today. If you were to die today, if the Lord were to some reason, um, you know, recently this week in Medina they had a massive gas leak. So um, if that were to happen again this morning, we were all just kind of incinerated in one massive natural gas uh, inferno uh, where would you stand with the Lord today? And if you don't know where you stand, then the Lord would invite you to, to believe and trust in Him that even today is the day of salvation. And if you know today, if you know that you have faith and trust in Christ, a genuine faith, a saving faith, that it's only the Lord that would usher you into heaven, 
but you have not been obedient in the waters of baptism, then please come speak to me or speak to Pastor Dave and let us know. We, we, um, we love the opportunity to celebrate what the Lord has done in your life through the waters of baptism, and so we invite you to do that, and uh, we will schedule that as soon as we can. Okay? So please, uh, the earnestness is on, on you, and the, uh, the impetus is on you, and we want to help you be obedient to that. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we just want to thank you for your work of salvation that you have so clearly initiated being the author and the completer of our faith in Christ. We believe and we affirm, Lord, that our belief is not of our own doing, but is of your doing. And that you are just and righteous and holy and yet so compassionate. Lord God, help us to proclaim the truth of your word to the lost around us, to, to go intentionally, to go with intentionality through our work week, that we might be disciples of you and how we live our lives, but also, Lord, that you would grant us opportunities to specifically proclaim Christ to the lost around us, to be an encouragement to them that their sins can be forgiven, the weight of their sin could be gone, that their consciences could be clean by faith in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to your word, to be ever increasing in our sharpness of thinking, but also, Lord, in our compassionate loving of one another and of the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.